Good morning. It's good to see all you guys. Happy Easter. I love this day. I love getting to uh, celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And like Daniel was saying, we, we honestly do that every Sunday. As a matter of fact, that's why uh, Christian churches meet on Sundays. The uh, old Jewish Sabbath was actually Saturday, but the reason Christians have historically met on Sundays is uh, to commemorate the uh, way that Christ rise, uh, rose from the dead on Sunday. Uh, but I know in, this weekend in particular, um, people kind of stop and, and reflect on that in a special way. So as Cass already mentioned, I know a lot of our uh, normal people that are around or have gone out of town to be with their families, but I also see a lot of other people that are not usually here that have come into town to celebrate with us. So uh, all of you guys that are visitors, I see a lot of families out there. It's uh, nice to have you guys here. I'm Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O. And uh, as I was thinking of this idea of, of all the travel that happens this weekend, and maybe think about road trips. And uh, have any of you guys ever been on a road trip that started off really great and then like ended kind of poorly? Anyone? Okay. I, I think a lot of us have had that before. I take a lot of road trips, so I've, I've uh, definitely had that experience. One was uh, I had a friend that was getting married in Miami, Florida, and the wedding was awesome. Like they were actually getting married on a yacht in Miami. Uh, I got to officiate the wedding. Uh, they're good. Both of them were good friends of mine that were part of H2O. And it was cool, too, because since they were H2O people, there were a ton of us that were going down to Florida. It was kind of like going on vacation with your friends. Uh, so it was a great time, right? Um, my car, Cass and I drove down there along with John and Ashley Stickway. And uh, it, the, we got down there just fine. But right as we started to get into Miami, uh, the car did something weird. It kind of started to lurch a little bit. Like, ah, oh, no big deal. I'm sure it's fine. And, you know, we got to our Airbnb and, and uh, kind of went about our week. As we started to drive back uh, to Ohio, uh, the, let's just say the return trip was not nearly as smooth as the trip down there. Um, what was supposed to be a 16-hour drive ended up turning into something that was, I think, over 24 hours uh, because the car continued to keep lurching and lurching to the point where we finally had to stop and uh, somewhere in the middle of Kentucky, southern Kentucky, and uh, find a mechanic that we could take it to, to, to look at this thing and just say, hey, what's going on? So we sit at the mechanic for hours. Finally, they say, hey, you've got some sort of uh, issue with the computer that's, that's communicating to your transmission. It's telling you the car that's in the wrong gear. Like, okay, well, what can we do about it? They're like, well, I think that you can make it back to Cincinnati fine. Uh, just be careful. <laughs> okay, so okay, so we still, we're still, like, I think it was at least three hours away from Cincinnati. And so we're kind of constantly dealing with this on the way back. Finally, we get to Cincinnati, and I don't think the car could have made it like another 10 miles further than what we got it. Um, and so, you know, get into my mechanic, and, and he fixes it. But overall, there was a ton of damage that was done to the transmission to where uh, eventually I ended up needing to get rid of that car and uh, got the new car that I have now, which ended up kind of being a blessing because I got that car right before prices went crazy from the pandemic. So uh, sometimes there's a silver lining in things. Uh, but may maybe you guys have had trips like this that are similar, where it's like, man, everything about it starts really well, it's great, uh, but then some something takes a bad turn where all of a sudden uh, it doesn't end the same way that it started. And in our scripture passage this morning, we are going to be looking at a road trip uh, from a couple guys 2,000 years ago. They didn't have a car, they did it on foot, um, that started really well, and then it took a turn for being really, really bad. But just like there was kind of a silver lining in, in mine where I ended up getting a, a new car at the right time, uh, for them, they, they would come to realize that this turn that seemed so terrible 
ended up actually being something that was really necessary and good and important. Uh, so with that being said, we're going to pray, and then uh, we'll dive into our scripture for today. God, we love you, and thank you so much uh, for who you are. I thank you that you're God that cares about us, and like you're just totally worthy of being worshipped. I, I love the fact that we get to sing with you together. I love the fact that uh, we get to pray to you. God, you're, you're more worthy than even all the things that we say about you. And I thank you that you're with us, God, I, that you are with us here in this room. I thank you that you didn't leave us as orphans. Thank you for the, the promise of the Spirit, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit dwells within your people. And I thank you, God, that uh, this is, Jesus, when you gave the Great Commission, you said, uh, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, God, I thank you that you're here with us. I pray that you'd minister to our hearts and to our minds, Lord, as we open up your scripture this morning. Uh, let it be something that makes us more like you and that uh, helps us to fall more in love with you, Lord. We thank you so much for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right. So, as I said, we're going to be uh, joining in with these guys on a little road trip that they took about 2,000 years ago. And uh, before we get into the actual text, so I want to say these two guys th th that we're going to be looking at, we actually don't know that much about them. Matter of fact, one of them, I don't even know what their name is. Uh, the other guy, his name is Cleopas, so I at least know 50% of their names. Um, I also actually don't know where they lived, for sure. So I'm telling you it's a road trip. I'm pretty confident it's a road trip because uh, I... Just all the way that people were traveling into Jerusalem at this time. We even see them or meet them. They're traveling out of Jerusalem. Uh, I can almost assure you they probably didn't live in Jerusalem, but I can't be 100% sure of that. Uh, really, pretty much all that I do know about them is that they were followers of Jesus. Okay? And I don't know how long they had been following Jesus, but they had definitely uh, believed in him at some point that they had a hope that Jesus was someone who was really, really special. Matter of fact, uh, in the text we'll read today, it says that they hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what that means is that these guys were guys that believed in the Old Testament scriptures, that believed that God was going to uh, deliver his people out of darkness and bring them into prosperity. They had fallen on some hard times. We didn't know exactly what that prosperity would look like, but they knew that God was preparing somebody that was going to do something really big and really good and really important for their nation, for Israel. And as they had gotten to know Jesus and see his miracles and his teachings, all this kind of stuff, they thought, this is the guy. This has to be the one that the scriptures are talking about. So we know that. Um, and it, it seems that they had some level of uh, connection, maybe even with the apostles or some other women. When Jesus was uh, going around, by the way, I think sometimes we picture Jesus like he only had his 12 disciples with him all the time and no one else. In fact, like Jesus usually had like a, a larger entourage than that that was traveling around with him, okay? There were other people that had been with Jesus even for years of his ministry that were not part of the 12 disciples, okay? But they were still people that were constantly with him. So at some point, our friend Cleopas and this other guy joined that entourage. But I don't know when exactly it was, all right? Um, so they, they had come in, and the reason that this road trip had gotten off to such a great start was because they thought Jesus was this really special guy. And earlier that week, uh, they had walked into Jerusalem, and it seemed like a lot of other people thought that Jesus was that guy too. 
right? Like they walked in and it was a madhouse. Like people were waving palm branches and they were throwing cloaks on the ground and uh, they were shouting Hosanna, which is this, this term that means save us. And, and there was a lot of like a fever pitch in the city about excitement of Jesus entering this. And so certainly they had to be thinking, yes, this is it. Like, because the Passover was one of the most important feasts in the Jewish uh, calendar. And so you would get all of these people taking road trips to Jerusalem. Uh, Jews from all over the nation and even outside of it would come and they would converge on Jerusalem during this week. And so you, they must have been thinking, what better time for Jesus to kind of take up his rightful authority as king than this week? And it seems like a lot of other people were thinking that as well. However, things took a turn for the worse, at least in their minds. And even though that, that uh, week started so great, it didn't end very great at all. And I think that most of you in this room, even if you're not a Christian, probably are aware of the fact that uh, what happened at the end of that week is that Jesus ended up getting crucified. He didn't end up taking a, a crown of a king. Instead, he ended up taking a crown of thorns, and he hung on the cross, and he died. And so these guys, as you can imagine, were pretty upset about that. Jesus was somebody that they cared about, that they trusted, that they had hope in. And now it seemed like all that hope was lost. And so this is where we're going to pick up with our friends in Luke chapter 24. Starting in verse 13, we see this. <clears throat> and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And we'll stop there for a second. So they're sad. Right? Like they're, they're, they're still trying to process everything that's just happened. Just a couple days ago, this guy that, that they had put all their hope in and all their, their trust in had been killed. And, you know, they said, that we, we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And frankly, they said, yes, some of the women among us amazed us. They went to the tomb and they found it empty. But what does that really mean? Right? Like a missing body really doesn't mean that much in of itself. You know, and they, they said that they saw a vision of angels that, that told them he had risen, but they, they didn't see Jesus himself. And honestly, in this time, a lot of people didn't trust the testimony of women anyway. And so I have to think that, that Cleopas and his friend were probably not really sold 
on this idea that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And I think that's why they're still walking around sad. They still hadn't heard a report of anyone actually seeing Jesus himself yet. And so with this new guy that seems to live under a rock, who is actually Jesus, that they're walking along with, they're explaining what's going on and how they're feeling. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus responds by saying, guys, haven't you read the scriptures, right? Like they said that they thought that this guy, Jesus, was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Clearly they had some understanding that God had this promise that a redeemer was coming. He's like, you guys are fools. Like how slow you are to actually believe what they've said. Like, can't you look at the scriptures and see that all this stuff actually had to happen? What you think was so terrible was actually something that was really important. Matter of fact, it had to happen for God to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Now, this is really important for us. When Jesus says, he goes and he opens up the scriptures to them to help them see everything that was talking about him. I wish so much that this was recorded, like everything Jesus said. I would have loved to see that. I'm bummed that, that we don't have it. Um, but even though we don't have it, I, I, I can look back at the Old Testament. I can see all these different kind of things. And we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning actually looking through what I think are probably just some of the things that Jesus pointed out to them. But one thing that's important for us is this. If there are scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, that were written hundreds, some even thousands of years before the time of Christ, that were prophesying all this stuff that had to happen, then that should mean something to us, right? Like, that gives strength to the argument that the Bible really is the Word of God. You know, I hope that as, as I show you this this morning, that, that you'll come away from here with a little bit more confidence that the Bible that you read, that, that thing that I, I hope you're reading it a lot, maybe it just sits in yourself, whatever it is, that is not just another book. Like, that is God's Word to you. Man, I remember the first time I, I really started to realize that in my life. That is what transformed my life. I was a middle schooler and, and reading some of God's word, and it was specifically looking at prophecies that were made in it and seeing how those were already fulfilled in history, like, started to, to really change me. I started to honor God's word and let it transform my life in a way that I had never done before. You know, and, and if God had prophesied that these things need to happen, then, man, this shows us how awesome our God is. That he had all this stuff planned out from long ago. And it can help us to trust in the future promises of God. You know, sometimes things happen where it can look like God doesn't know what he's doing. Right? And I think that seems, that's probably how Cleopas and his friend felt here. Right? It's like, my goodness, we've been waiting so long for this guy to come and redeem Israel. Here we finally think the guy's here. And what happens? The Romans kill him and he dies on a cross. Another hope dashed. And guys, sometimes we might feel that same way in our lives. Where we look at trends that are going on, we say, oh my goodness, America's becoming less and less Christian. You know, all this kind of stuff. There's all these people struggling with doubts and suicide and depression and everything. And it can look like everything is going in the wrong direction. And it can almost sometimes cause us to lose hope. And when we can look back and see that God is faithful to fulfilling the promises that he makes, that should give us hope for the future. No matter how bleak our present looks, if we can trust God and his word, then we can look forward to the future and have hope. Okay, I think it's important for us to see how he's been faithful to his word in the past. 
And this also shows us that we should seriously study God's word. These guys were aware of, of the Old Testament. It's not like they didn't know it. They knew there was one coming to redeem Israel. But they, they missed so much of what it was actually communicating. And as we look into this, we're going to see how the Bible really is one big story with a, with a main theme about what God is doing to reconcile this broken relationship between himself and his creation, chief of which is us, his people. So, as I said earlier, man, I, I wish we had a record of everything Jesus explained to them uh, on that road. I don't know what it was. Um, I know there's a lot of Old Testament scriptures that I could point to. So I'm just going to have to be selective in a few themes that I want to draw out here this morning. And most of them are going to really center around this idea of sin, the penalty for sin, the, the, the way that it requires life, and how that pointed forward to Jesus who would give his life for our sin. Okay, And I'm not saying that every passage we talked about this morning is directly speaking about Jesus, although some of them are. But they're all contributing to this main theme that we see throughout the scriptures about what God is doing to show us that we are estranged from him, we're separated by our sin, that the penalty for that is death, but that one is coming who would pay that penalty in our place. Okay, All of the scripture is pointing towards that. So let's talk a little bit about that penalty for sin first. In Genesis chapter 2, this is before any sin is in the world, God creates Adam. He creates man in his image. Uh, he would create Eve as well, but uh, after he created Adam, it says, uh, we'll start here in Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Okay, so what do we see is the penalty for death, uh, for sin here? Death, right? Death is the penalty of sin. This is pretty clear uh, from the beginning. And it, we see that sin is a major problem that has major consequences. And I don't really think that we treat it like that all the time. I don't think we really realize that. But God's very clear here. So what happened to Adam and Eve after they ate from the tree? They died. Okay? Now, some people, I talk to sometimes, they're like, no, they didn't. Like, they still lived on for a long time. Does anyone know Adam and Eve now? Are they still walking around? No. They, they died. Okay? Uh, they, they died. They suffered the penalty that, that came in because of their sin. But they didn't die immediately. And there's a reason for that. There are a few other things that happened first. First, they saw that they were naked. So they made clothes for themselves. Okay, Genesis 3, 7 says this right after they sinned. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is interesting, because this same theme is actually spoken about before they sin. In Genesis 2, 25, it tells us that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So now that they sinned, shame has come into the world, and consequently, they tried to do something to cover up this shame. There was some sort of awareness of their nakedness, of their vulnerability, they, and they knew that they needed some sort of covering, okay? So they did the best they could, and they sewed some uh, loin, uh, a loincloth together out of leaves. I can't imagine that's a very effective covering, but they did the best that they could, okay? This, uh, this concept of covering is actually really important. Remember that. We're going to come back to this. But something else happened shortly after they sinned and became ashamed, was that they tried to hide themselves from God. Now, this, of course, didn't work. I, I have a daughter that's one. She's a little bit too young to be playing hide-and-seek yet. 
Um, but when I play with my nieces and nephews, sometimes they're, they're absolutely terrible at hide and seek, right? Like they, they, they're not good at hiding from adults for several reasons. First off, they're, they're too little to find good hiding spots. But second, even if they found a halfway decent hiding spot, all you have to say is, where's whatever their name is, and they'll tell you. They, they call out and they, or they'll laugh or whatever, and they, they'll tell you exactly where they are, right? Like you, you can't effectively hide. These kids can't effectively hide from an adult. And uh, in, in the same way, I mean, Adam and Eve, they're, they're trying to cover themselves, right? They tried to make loincloths. They're aware of their nakedness. They're ashamed. They're trying to hide themselves from God. But this, of course, doesn't work. We see Genesis 3, 8 to 10. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Here again we see this concept of covering. They realized that they needed some sort of covering. They confess their sin and God proceeds to pronounce a curse on all of the guilty parties. Now this includes Adam and Eve, but it also includes the serpent that tempted them. And the curse of the serpent was actually pronounced first. And we see in this curse that God is not simply angry with Adam and Eve. He is angry with, with them over their sin, but we see that he, he's not ready to just be done with them, okay? It would have been perfectly got, uh, just for God to just kill them right there. He warned them, if you eat from this, you will die. And like I said, they did die, but he didn't kill them right away. As a matter of fact, when he curses the serpent, we actually see that God still has a plan of life for them because he speaks about their, their uh, offspring. And we see this, we see actually a very encouraging promise that happens in the context of the serpent's curse. Genesis 3, 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It's offspring. And he shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Man, God promises that there's a seed of the woman that's coming. An offspring. Okay? Now, this means God has plans of life for Adam and Eve. They still don't have kids at this point. And we see that this coming seed of the woman is going to have a battle with the serpent. Some future battle is coming that's hinted at. And both are going to land blows, right? Like I always sit, tell people that... I uh, do like ultimate fighting or boxing or whatever. It's like, man, I think that's such a crazy sport because even if you win, like you still get beat up like most of the time, right? Like, like when you just go to battle, like you, you, t you get beat up even if you're the winner. And we see that that's what's going to be coming, wh whatever, down the road, whenever the seed of the woman and, and the serpent thing is going to happen, there's, there's going to be blows and both sides are going to inflict damage. But we see that one is certainly going to inflict more damage than the other, right? The serpent is going to bruise the heel. That sucks. I don't like bruising my heels. But the, the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head. He, he's going to crush this, this serpent. He's going to be the one that prevails in this battle. And we see, remember what Jesus said in Luke 24 to those men on the road to Emmaus. He says, was it not necessary, necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Right here. In Genesis chapter 3, we see some of the first signs 
of the scripture showing us that it was necessary for this to happen before Christ would enter into his glory. The bruising of the heel has to happen if the crushing of the head is going to happen. Now, we're not done with our Genesis passage yet, though, because I think there's, honestly, Genesis is just amazing. I feel like I could teach on that for hours. But th there's still something else here that points powerfully towards Jesus, and it happens uh, right after God pronounced the curses. So right after he's, he's cursed the serpent, he goes on to, to give Adam his curse and Eve her curse. Um, actually, he does Eve and then Adam. But then we see this in Genesis 3.20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Interesting, right? I told you that this theme of covering was really important, right? What is it that Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They realized they were naked. They tried to make coverings for themselves. They tried to hide from God. They understood that they needed some sort of covering. Well, after these, this sin has been confessed and the curses have been doled out, we see that God actually makes a covering for them. Now, there's also something else we've seen in Genesis that's really interesting that plays into this passage. Uh, we, we've seen not only that Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed and knew they needed covering, but we've also seen what about sin? That death is the penalty for it, right? What do we see happening here? God makes a covering, and how does he make the covering? God makes the clothes out of skin. Now, what does this mean? I don't think Adam and Eve were walking around like... Uh, um, like a, with no skin on, like just being able to see the muscle and the bones and everything. I don't think that was the case, right? When it says that God makes them a covering of skin, I think what's going on here is saying God killed an animal. Like I honestly think that the first death that happened from sin was not the death of Adam and Eve. It was the death of an animal that was sacrificed and its skin was used as a covering for Adam and Eve that they needed. This is really cool, right? Like we see that there's this covering that's necessary and we see that, there's, that death is what's necessary for sin and we see that something else ended up actually paying death to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. How cool is that, right? Now, this communicates the idea of one dying in the place of another to be a covering for their sin and shame, which I believe is pointing us towards Jesus. Now, I realize I'm speculating a little bit here. The text doesn't explicitly say that God killed an animal to make garments of skin, but I think that this is what it's communicating, given the information that we have and how it all fits together. And it's really amazing and beautiful when you think about that. But even if you're not sold on that, uh, you can very clearly see the idea throughout all the Old Testament that animals were to be sacrificed for the sin of God's people. Or, you could actually say more specifically, that animals were to be sacrificed to cover the sins of God's people. This is seen most clearly in the rituals that took place on the Day of Atonement, which we can read about in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus gets a bad rap a lot of time. People complain about that book and think it's boring. But man, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's going on in Leviticus that I think that is actually pointing forward towards Jesus about the things that were necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. In Leviticus 23, 26 to 27, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, there's more detail given ex about exactly what should be done on this day of atonement elsewhere in Leviticus. But a couple things I want to point out here. Uh, first off, 
the name of this day. It's called the Day of Atonement, okay? Atonement is not really a word that we use very much in English, right? Like, when's the last time that you were talking to somebody and they use the word atonement? Can anyone, has that happened to anyone in the last week? Maybe. Okay, maybe if you're having a religious conversation. Uh, it's not something that we use very often. Um, but the, if we actually look at this in Hebrew, the, the, the word is very interesting. The Day of Atonement in Hebrew, the term for it is Yom Kippur, okay? And Yom is just the Hebrew word for day. And Kippur uh, comes from the root word kephar, which means cover. Interesting. So the Day of Atonement actually means the day of covering. That, that would be a, an adequate translation. Um, and so what, what is it that we see would happen on this day? An offering is presented on this day. On this day, the, the high priest, the Jewish people, he would slaughter several animals. And he would go in uh, to all these different places in their, their tabernacle and later their temple. And he'd be sprinkling the blood on this. And this, this was to make atonement for his sins, for the sins of the people, and even for these uh, materials that, that dwelt in the midst of sinful people. There's a lot of instruction given about this, uh, but it concludes by saying this. I'll just read this out of Leviticus 16, 32 to 34. So the priest who is anointed and ordained the service priest in his father's place shall make atonement covering. He shall thus put on linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of the meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement, covering, for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. So the sacrifice of animals, the giving of life for sin was necessary to make a covering for the sins of the people. Now, you'll notice that this command was given to Israel to do once every year. Uh, why is it that this has to keep happening? All right? The, the reason is because this sacrificial system that's set up in Leviticus is only a shadow of what it was pointing forward to. Right? Like, it, if you, you ever think of like a very, very, very tall person was walking towards you, and the sun was behind them, they might cast a shadow. And, and you might even see that shadow or, or maybe be covered by that shadow before the person would actually get to you. But this whole sacrificial system, that's all it is. It's a shadow of the one that it's actually pointing towards. We don't have the words that Jesus spoke to the man on the road to Emmaus, but we have something almost as good. We have the book of Hebrews. And this does some of this for us. Right now, Hebrews can be a really dense and tough read. It's an awesome book. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, you will love reading Hebrews. And I think if you read Hebrews, it might make you want to read the Old Testament a little bit more. But I want to uh, <clears throat> share a little bit out of this, uh, the book of Hebrews for you. Starting at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, that's, that includes all this sacrificial system stuff we're talking about. Since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." All right, we'll stop there for a second. He's saying that all this stuff in the sacrificial system couldn't actually take away sins. 
Remember, it's the day of atonement. It's the day of covering. It's kind of uh, doing something to, to, to cover up the sins, but it's not able to be something that actually takes it away. It's a shadow of what's to come. It's something that's pointing forward to what would uh, come. Something else is going to be needed if sins are actually going to be done away with once and for all. And he goes on to say this, uh, starting in verse 5. Therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, uh, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He takes away the first to establish the second. God's not honestly, a, the, the sacrifices, all this kind of stuff, that was just a shadow of what was to come. It wasn't the substance of what was really, really important. And when Jesus came, ultimately what was to do the will of God, which was to come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that included the offering of his body once and for all. Remember what Jesus said to the guys on the road to Emmaus, right? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter his glory? You see, Jesus knew that if glory was to come, that he needed to suffer first. That there needed to be a true sacrifice that could actually take away sins. The Hebrews told us the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for that to take away sins. But the one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, is the one that's actually able to do that. He came in perfect obedience to be the perfect sacrifice. The men Jesus spoke to on the road to Emmaus were so downtrodden because they thought that the cross meant that Jesus was defeated. But actually it meant that Jesus followed through on his mission. He said that he came to seek and to save the lost. And he did this by being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. There's a lot of scripture that pointed to Jesus and the necessity of his death on the cross. And that's why Jesus told these men that they were foolish. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You know, one of those prophets, Isaiah, gave an incredible description of really what this, this suffering for the sins of the people would look like. And he did this hundreds of years before it happened, okay? This is one of the things I think that should really make you think about how much you trust the scripture. The book of Isaiah, we know, like the Jews were already reading this, already studying this, already following this hundreds of years before the time of Christ, okay? The, the passage I want to read for, for you out of Isaiah you would swear it comes out of the New Testament. Like it's that accurate of a description of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But this is what Isaiah saw hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. I'm just going to pick it up. It starts a little earlier than this, but I'll start at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through... For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. 
all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Remember how quiet Jesus was before Pilate on trial. Uh, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he... He died between two criminals, remember. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was given a tomb from Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. We know Jesus was sinless. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Offspring, we are adopted in the family of God. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, necessary of suffering, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Guys, that, like, that, that, that is amazing. I don't know how anyone is not a Christian after reading that. Like, that was written 100 years before Jesus. Like, it, that, it's, it's describing Christian theology perfect. Like, this is, if I was to tell you, penal substitutionary atonement, that's, that's the theological seminary type term we use for what we believe about what Jesus did in dying on the cross for our sins. This is describing it right here. Hundreds of years before Jesus actually went to the cross and died for us. How foolish these men are. Slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, when Jesus said that, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer? He did say that, but he said, and to enter his glory. You see, the the, the suffering is is well spoken about and prophesied, but also we see that there's a glory portion of it. And that's what we celebrate here on Easter, right? It didn't just end at the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. Right? And even there in Isaiah 53 passage, 53, 12, it says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. It's not the end. You know, the guys on the road to Emmaus, they, they thought that the, the, it had come to an end. They thought the lights went out. The guy they were hoping in had died. It was over. No, no, no. The suffering had to come first, but then comes the glory. And Jesus rose on Easter morning, on the third day. Entered into his glory. Christ didn't just suffer. He also entered into glory. It was in his death that Jesus had his greatest victory. And even though he was bruised on the heel by the serpent, it was in this that he crushed his head. And it was in the death that Jesus accomplished his mission to save sinners. To bear our sins on himself. The suffering had to come, but this is what brought glory. And in glory, I mean these two things. First off, that he's exalted. Philippians 2, 8-10 
says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know, when I was, was praying, I was just talking about, God, you're so worthy of being praised. Right? Like, the resurrection should inflame our hearts to want to worship. Like, like, he humbled himself all the way to the point of death on a cross, but he rose from the dead. He conquered that. And he has the name that's above every name. When we come and we sing praises to God and we worship Jesus, that is exactly what we should be doing. And, you know, not, not only uh, does he deserve all this glory because of the fact that he is the one that conquered sin and death when no one else could, but he also has glory because he now gets to be united with those whom he loves. He's brought people to himself, and this is part of his glory. He loves being united with us, which is possible now that we've been forgiven of our sin that separated us. You know, Ephesians 5 there's a section talking about wives and husbands, but uh, in it we're seeing actually how Christ loved the church and gave himself up so that he could be with her. Look at this, Ephesians 5, 27 and 20, uh, 25 to 27. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You know, as Christ suffered and he enters into glory, part of that glory he enters into is a shared glory that he gives to us. Like that's part of the glory is that he, he gets us to be with him. Like that's what he wants. Even if you look at, I, I was a week or two ago when I preached, on, uh, I talked about John 17 and even this fact that Jesus was praying for unity and he was saying, God, I want them to be together with us and with, with each other. Like it's part of Jesus' glory for us to be brought together into right relationship with him. And so as I come to close, I want to circle back around to our friends that we met on the road to Emmaus. You know, their, their trip to Jerusalem, it started out great. I'm sure Palm Sunday was an exciting event. And you know, it was probably cool to see Jesus put the money changers in, in their place when he went into the temple and started whipping people and, and turning tables. I'm, I'm sure it was probably an awesome week at the beginning of that week. And then it got bad. They thought it was the end. I can't imagine something that would have been more devastating and excruciating to watch than the crucifixion. You know, this would have been tough even though they were told it had to happen. Jesus even warned his disciples explicitly like, I'm about to go die. And they were still caught off guard by it. Because they didn't believe the warnings or take them seriously. They didn't really believe what the prophet said, right? He said, oh foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And guys, I do not want you to come away this morning making the same mistake that they did. Being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, they were caught off guard by the crucifixion even though they were told that it was going to happen. And we have hindsight on that, but there's something else that's still off in the future that we need to be ready for. We are told that judgment is coming. Okay? Just like they were told that Christ was going to have to suffer before he enters into glory, we are told 
that judgment is coming upon this earth before restoration is fully accomplished. Right? Before God completes that grand story of the Bible of, of fixing all that was broken, judgment comes first. And that's when all that's wrong and what's broken will be done away with. Paul warns us of this in Acts 17, 30-31. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The world is going to be judged in righteousness. God's standard is perfect righteousness. And guys, you cannot be righteous on your own. The blood of bulls and goats, it can't take away sins, right? That's what Israel was doing. They were even doing what God told them, but we see that that was just a shadow. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And guys, it's impossible for your own efforts to take away your sins either. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one perfect sacrifice for all time, and that is Jesus who offered himself up on the cross for you to be saved. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And his disciples understood that message perfectly. They said in Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Do not be caught off guard, guys. Like, like it's appointed for men to die once and then, death, and then comes judgment. And I don't want you to be slow to believe all that has been written the way that Cleopas and his friend were. You know, and praise God, he opened their eyes and they came to see Jesus and they, they, they saw who he was and believed in the resurrection. But I don't want you to be got off guard when the time comes. I don't know when your time is coming. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he promises that he will. And I want you to be ready for that day. And the only way that you can do that is by putting your faith in the one sacrifice, the one true sacrifice that can actually take away sins. May we come to him. And may we be people that share in his glory, right? His glory is not just that his name is lifted up. His glory is that he gets to be with the people that he paid for with his blood. And if you want to come to him today, guys, he's not going to cast you out. Right? A verse I was meditating on earlier this week, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I don't know where all of you are in your relationship with the Lord this morning, but I can tell you today that Jesus wants you to come to him. And if you do, he's not going to cast you out. If you want to talk to somebody about uh, what that looks like to come to Jesus and to enter into a relationship, to be covered in the blood of Christ and have your sins removed, I would love to talk with you about that. I would love to pray with you. And there'll be some other people that will be just kind of standing around the room as well on the sides that, that would be happy to do that as well, okay? If you do know Jesus, then man, I, I hope that, that this morning has helped you to just see his majesty even more, to see the glory of God, to want to worship him more. And man, like, let's give him all the praise he deserves. As we sing these next couple songs, as we close out the service, but also just like in the way we live, as we go forth, as we see our families today or go to our coworkers tomorrow or whatever it may be, let's be people that carry the message of Jesus with us because he's worthy of being praised, right? He suffered 
and now he deserves his glory. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you uh, so much for who you are. And, and we just proclaim, God, that, that you are worthy of all glory. You're worthy of all praise. Um, I, I thank you, God, that we get to sing that to you. And I thank you, God, that we get to like live in a way that, that praises you. I, I pray that we'd have lives of worship, God, and, and that, that we would honestly like live like living sacrifices like we talked about in our Roman, Roman series. Uh, that we'd be people that have minds transformed by you, that, that we would know your will and that we would do it. God, I pray especially for anyone in this room today that doesn't know you. I pray that today would be the day that they come to you. I thank you for the perfect covering, God, for, for even more than a covering, the one that, that actually washes our sin away, that actually takes it away, that, that purifies us for all time. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sins, for being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, God. You deserve all glory. And so thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for cleansing us. Move in our hearts, Lord, and, and, and move in our world. I pray that many would come to know you. We love you. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.